0: Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, Jesus Christ, your son. Thank you for the sacrifice on the cross and for giving us eternal life in your son. We ask that you would speak to us through your word this morning. Uh, Speak to us through my words. Let them be your words uh, to the congregation here. And let's be blessed by them as we go forth in the week. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, This morning, our passage is from the book of Hebrews again, Uh, chapter 10, and there is a typo, and that is 100% my fault. It is verses 1 through 18, not 1 through 15. For some reason, the 5 looked like an 8 on my computer screen. Uh, So hear the word of the Lord. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, "Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and in sin offerings you have taken no pleasure." Then I said, "Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book." <clears throat> when he when he said above, So last week, we talked about the need for a new covenant. And what I had um, proposed to you was Hebrews 9 is talking about, we need a new covenant because we need new blood to cover our sins. As it states explicitly in this passage, we see that, for it is impossible, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And that was the whole thrust of chapter 9 is that from the beginning there was a need for new blood. We need pure blood that can actually cover our sins. And so we have a connection between the old and the new. We have a connection between the first and the second that we cannot break. One is the fulfillment of the other. As Augustine so adequately put, and I quoted last week, and I'll remind you, he says, "'In the old is the new concealed, And in the new is the old revealed. And I gave an analogy of a plant. It starts as a seed and it grows into a tree. A plant has not functionally changed its essence in a way, but it has grown into a tree. We don't look at a seed and say, oh, that's an apple tree. And we don't look at an apple tree and say, oh, that's a seed. But really all that we gave it was water, soil and light. And so the same is with the first and the second. As we see here, it says he does away with the first in order to establish the second. He does away with the sacrifices of bulls and goats because they're unable to cover sins in order to establish a sacrifice that can actually atone for our sins. And that is the crux of this passage today and the application given to us, is that Christ's sacrifice can actually atone for our sins And because of that, we have been perfected for all time because of this one sacrifice. Now there's a lot of words that can be misinterpreted in Hebrews 10 here, specifically the word, the law. And when I first came across this passage when I was a new Christian, I was pretty confused by this passage in all honesty, because it says he does away with the first, establishes the second, and he'll no longer write the laws of God down but he'll write it on their hearts. And so what I was thinking was the Ten Commandments. And I was thinking, oh, so are the Ten Commandments not needed for the Christian life? Do we not obey them? Are they not a guidepost for us? Are they not applicable to us? And so there was some confusion for me. And as I continued to study, uh, confusion kept uh, multiplying itself. And it wasn't really until I studied languages, in all honesty, at seminary, Uh, And now I teach language. And something that I teach uh, in Hebrew, I teach Hebrew at Westminster, and something that I teach at the beginning of every semester is context is king. And it really is true. Context is king. Because the same word that uh, we use in one situation can mean almost a completely opposite thing in another situation. For example, the word wicked. I use this all the time. If you're a student of mine, you've probably heard this five times, 10 times, maybe a hundred. But the word wicked uh, in one context means bad, evil. If I say, what does wicked mean? You're like, oh, that's bad, that's evil. But you go to California where I spent three years and you go, that's wicked, man. It's a good thing. It's actually a really good thing. You're like, that was really cool. That was awesome. So literally in two different contexts, we have the same word meaning two completely opposite things. Similarly, a word like cool. I wish it was cool outside right now, uh, cause it's getting hot. But that can also mean a sense of societal, uh, like you, you look cool in a sense. When you say you look cool, you're not saying, oh, you look like you're low in temperature, right? And so words are determined, or their meanings are determined by their context. Now you can't make any word mean anything. We're not going that far. Uh, Every word has a range of meanings, but in this passage, when it talks about the first and the second, when it talks about the old and the new, and specifically when it talks about the law, context is king. What is being talked about in chapters 9 and 10? The blood of bulls and goats and the blood of Christ. The laws that are done away with in the first are the laws according to the sacrifices of blood and goats. Because those are no longer needed. Because they could never actually atone for sin. It's not that the Ten Commandments go away. And this is why Paul is accused of neglecting God's law, like the Ten Commandments in Romans. Where they say to Paul, it's like, oh, where sin abounds, grace abounds, even the more, so why even uphold the law? And Paul says, what are you talking about? We need to because we have died to sin and been risen with Christ." And so, I say all this because we want to be mindful when dealing with a tricky passage like this about what is being spoken of. What is being spoken of primarily is the sacrifices. The sacrifice of blood and goats cannot atone for sins, but the sacrifice of Christ can. And that is really important to keep in mind as we continue through this passage. Because what is the application of that sacrifice in your life as a Christian? What does it mean? What does it mean in terms of God looking at you and you looking at God? Well, at the core, Christ's blood is sufficient to forgive those who repent and believe in him of all sins, past, present, and future. Christ has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And here, what we see is that those who are being sanctified is really an identifier. It is marking the the people who are perfected for all time. That is, Christians. That is, those who repent and believe in Christ. And so I find this passage really the heart of the, uh, really the crux of the matter of this um, section in Hebrews. As I mentioned last week, uh, some theologians and some periods of church history have emphasized that not all sins are forgiven, right? In the high middle ages, there was a intense penance cycle where only past sins were forgiven. And then you would have to come to the church and you would have to to confess your sins. And then only the sins that you confess to the church are then forgiven to you by the grace bestowed from the church. And so if you didn't confess a sin, you weren't necessarily forgiven of it. And so you had to pay some penalty after you died. Similarly, there are Protestant theologians who argue a very similar thing where they would say that only your past sins are forgiven. And so it is more important, it is like of the utmost importance that you live a perfect Christian life. And that every time you sin, you need to go confess and receive grace from God. And what we see here is that We can fall into two ditches when uh, analyzing this passage. One ditch is that we take sin too lightly, actually. And we fall into licentiousness, which I mentioned earlier. And the other is that we don't take the perfection given from Christ, uh, the sacrifice of his blood severely enough, such that we emphasize sin so much that sin is actually insurmountable. And that is the whole focus of our life, is to just overcome sin, nothing else. And we know uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith helps us in this, that the chief end of man is not to not sin. that's not what it says. It says to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Not sinning is part of that. Fighting sin is part of that. But that is not the chief aim of the Christian. And really at the core of all this is a matter of identity. Now identity is a hot topic in our culture today uh, because people want to identify as pretty much whatever they want. Uh, And there is objective identity. And as a Christian, we do have an objective identity. And so I want to ask a basic question. Are you a saint who sins or a sinner who does good? And I phrase it this way because what we put first oftentimes is the focus of our identity. If we constantly are talking about ourselves as a sinner, and we even mentioned uh, in uh, Maxwell being uh, brought into membership, in the, uh, what was said, it's, it said, are you a sinner apart from salvation? Yes, apart from salvation. But as a Christian, our identity, is it sainthood or is it a sinner? Are we a saint who sins or are we a sinner who does good occasionally? Because how we think of ourselves in this context is really important for how we live our lives. If we constantly are thinking, oh, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner, and I've even been in many circles where it's emphasized so much that they say, I'm sinning all the time. Well, that's a really dangerous place to be, as we learn from James chapter one and elsewhere in scripture. If we're constantly sinning, then we are constantly in rebellion to God. And if we are constantly in rebellion to God, it begs the question, have we ever been saved? And so being a saint doesn't mean you don't fight sin or haven't had sin in your life. But what it does mean is that your identity is first and foremost found in the perfection given from Christ Jesus. And that's what's being spoken of in Hebrews 10. It says he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. You as a Christian being ushered into the family of God have been perfected for all time. You are now a saint. God looks upon you with favor. He sees you as he sees his son and he sees you as totally perfect. Though sin wages war against you, your identity is with God in Christ as a son of God or a daughter of God. You are blameless in his eyes because of Christ. Because the blood, as we mentioned last week, was sufficient to actually cover your sins. And that's really important. Because there's a lot of assurance given with knowing that Christ has forgiven us of our sins. There's a lot of assurance knowing that though we may sin in the future, Christ is right there and he loves and approves of us. Though we may have had sins that are terrible in the past, Christ has perfected us. There's a lot of peace given with this as well. We have a sense of peace, and so in those circles that I mentioned, where sin is emphasized so much, uh, we have a doctrine in Calvinism that you know we do believe it's called total depravity, and a lot of times this is brought up. Oh, we're totally depraved, and what I thought this meant when I was constantly analyzing myself of sin and focusing so much on i need to not sin was all oh, I, I like everything i'm doing is sinful because i'm not glorifying god enough in everything i do and that's what i thought total depravity meant and what i learned as i started studying historical theology at least these terms that sometimes are misused is what i really was believing was something called utter depravity which means that we are as bad as we can be all the time in every faculty of our personhood. Total depravity is that we are affected by sin in every faculty of our personhood. So what that means is my mind is affected by sin, but my mind is not sinning all the time, constantly. That would be utter depravity. And so especially as a Christian, being in this, uh, focusing on sin so much, sin becomes so big that our God is unable to overcome it. then I started reading Hebrews and I started analyzing the scriptures and I started reading passages like this one that talked about perfection in Christ, that talked about me being perfect in Christ and not having to worry about trying to find forgiveness of sins. And it brought a lot of peace, a lot of security with that. And so with that, I want us to think about ourselves as Christians as primarily saints. Paul addresses all of the people who sin in Corinth as saints, to the saints in Corinth, to the saints in Rome, to the saints in Ephesus, to the saints in Colossia, to the saints in the dispersia, diaspora. The identity here is You are a saint. You are forgiven because the blood of Christ is sufficient. And since we are, since all sins are forgiven, it doesn't mean we can go do whatever we want. And that's one of the other pitfalls that you can fall into, right? The pitfall of sin is so big that we're constantly trying to just fight sin as our primary means of living the Christian life. That it, God is never big enough to actually free us from that sin. Versus the other pitfall, which I mentioned earlier, which is licentiousness or antinomianism or, or lawlessness. Right? Trying to do whatever you want. Oh, I've been perfected in Christ. Therefore, I can go do whatever I want. That includes lying, stealing, coveting, etc. But there, it begs the question if you've ever actually repented and understand your sin. Because if we view sin too big, our God is too small. But if we view sin too small, then it really, beg, uh, the sacrifice of Christ is really not that important for us. And so we need to find the balance. We need to find the balance of understanding that our sin is deserving of eternal punishment. It is big, as we, that's why I picked Romans 5, 18 through 21. Where sin abound, grace abound all the more. So though sin is big and the enemy is strong, our God is far, far stronger. And that's really important to remember as we continue in our Christian life. And so it kind of begs the question, or at least in my mind, it begs the question, okay, if we have been perfected, what do I then go and do as a Christian? Do I just try to live a holy life and that's it? What, like, where's the guidepost? And what does it mean to go and glorify God as the Westminster Confession of Faith states? Well, I think Christ gives us a really good answer uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16, he says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. as mentioned in uh, chapter nine last week, you have been set free from death. Paul talks about this a lot. You have been set free from the bondage of sin in order to serve the living God, in order to do good works, in order to shine your light so that others may be drawn to God. And this is precisely what Christ did in his life, right? He actually never sinned, so he never was set free from the bondage of sin, but he gives us an example of what it means as a Christian who goes forth in perfection. It means doing good works. It means shining your light towards others, to others, so that they may in turn glorify your God. Sin does wage war, but our identity is not in being a sinner or in bondage to sin. Our identity is in Christ, And so we need to remember that as sin starts to wage war on us, as we may sin, we may sin unintentionally or intentionally. And it is easy to fall into a trap of guilt, shame, guilt, shame, trying to overcome this and feel better about it and try to earn God's favor in some way. And what we need to do is we need to go to the throne of grace, as it's mentioned elsewhere, and understand that Christ's sacrifice is sufficient to cover that sin that we may have committed. We need to turn and repent, continually repent to him, knowing that he has said, you are forgiven. That is why in our liturgy, confession and the, uh, the um, exclamation of forgiveness of sins is so important. We go and confess. And then it says that he is just and right to forgive our sins. Why? Because he said it. Because he said he is, and he said he will do so. And as we mentioned last week, Genesis 1, chapter 3, really important verse. And God said, Let there be light, and then there was light. When God speaks, it is, period. And so when he says that those who come to him and repent and believe are, in fact, perfected for all time and forgiven of their sins, and you turn and repent and go to him, guess what? You are forgiven. And that is something that when I learned that and I could trust in that, trust in those words, it brought about an immense sense of freedom that I hadn't experienced before. Immense sense of freedom. And that's really what being perfected in Christ is about. We are free from the bondage of sin. We are free to serve the living God. We our yoke is light. And Christ says this in Matthew 11. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so the question I pose is, do we have a light yoke? Do we have a light burden? And do we offer that to those who have a heavy burden? That is the darkened world out there, that is the sinful world, right? They are in darkness. Non-Christians are in darkness. They have a burden on them. And I mentioned this last week, that burden is partly their conscience is constantly bearing witness against them. Their conscience is constantly convicting them of what they know is right and them not doing it. They know, as it says in Romans one, all of God's laws, and they know the punishment thereof and they repress it, and they continue to repress it, and I've, having conversed with a lot of non-Christians, this becomes more and more apparent. Every person out there knows that they've done wrong. I can't tell you how many friends I've had, especially in grad school, who very much against Christianity, and yet they know that lying is bad, and I ask them about it. I'm like, oh, so why do you lie? And they're like, well, I want to. I'm like, well, do you think it's wrong? And they're like, well, Yeah, of course it's wrong. It's not good to lie, but I want to. And what you see is that they are repressing the truth that is given to them because they are made in the image of God and they have a conscience. But that conscience over time gets seared. And so they are burdened with sin and they are under bondage to sin. And sin is a very bad master. It it keeps you down. It doesn't free you. And the, the burden is heavy, very heavy. And so when we view the world and when we view non-Christians who are in darkness, is that our disposition as free people thinking you need to be free, you are burdened, and I'm going to go and offer freedom to you. Now, they may respond in hate, they may persecute us, and that's where we need to look to our Savior and how he lived his life. Because if we look to his life, things get set in the right balance. And so I'm just going to walk through, just detailing some things about his life. Jesus Christ, God in heaven, condescended and took on flesh. He was a little baby, no bigger than many of the babies I see around here. And we forget that sometimes. He was that small at one time. He cried. He needed his mom. And then he grew, grew up. He learned wisdom, as it says in scripture. And when he became an adult, he had to work with his hands, and it was hard work. He was a carpenter, so they were working with stone. Uh, and the whole time, he, he is the owner of everything around him. And yet he's doing a very, in a sense, dirty job. Carpentry was not like a, a great job back then. Uh, it was a lot of hard work, <laughs> a lot of sweaty days out in the sun. <clears throat> and then as he grew up and was called. Uh, was baptized. He uh, started serving people, and he started preaching the truth. He started preaching about the, uh, the kingdom of God. And many people came to him, and guess what they started to do? He started to heal people. And most of these people who were healed I think we forget this sometimes actually left him and walked away. There's the parable of the, the nine lepers who are healed. There are 10 lepers who are healed, sorry, and nine actually just go away. Only one comes back. We forget that Christ served all of them, though. He showed goodness to every single one of them. <clears throat> and he served his friends, too, all of whom were going to betray him at his uh, moment of need. He even found one person who he knew was going to sell him over to death. And guess what he did? He even broke bread with him at the Last Supper. He showed Judas kindness all the time. He continued to preach around him. And all these people that he did good to, uh, <coughs> he, being the king of the universe, uh, was never bestowed any like, monetary reward. In fact, it was quite the opposite. As he says, foxes have holds, birds have nests. Foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He was homeless, didn't have much money to his name, if any. And then he's sold over to to Pilate, or to the the Sanhedrin, Uh, and he's beaten for about 48 hours. Uh, Up all night with sticks, rods, spit upon the lashes with uh, the little metal things in the backs that could rip the skin off your back, bleeding put a crown of thorns on, stripped naked, having to carry a cross. And this is the king of the universe. Carry a cross. And He's nailed to that cross. And even on the cross, they are dividing His garments. They are saying, hey, I want want that piece of clothing, I want that piece of clothing. And what does He say in that moment after this entire torturous period? He says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Even at like terrible anguish and pain. He is offering forgiveness and he is bestowing the light to a darkened world. And then his last breath, after being stabbed in the side and blood and water pouring out, which apparently is a very severe medical condition where you've basically lost all your blood, uh, he cries out with one last breath, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when we look at that life, That is the severity of sin that you have been forgiven of. And that's what we need to remember. The sin that you have been freed from required that sacrifice. And when we view our life and we view the world in light of that sacrifice, it is almost impossible to not feel a sense of grace from God and wanting to then bestow grace on other people. It is almost impossible to see that and then say, I'm not gonna go be kind to my neighbor. I'm gonna be harsh. And even more importantly, to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so I wanna leave you with that. Do not neglect this gift that has been given to you as Christians, having been perfected for all time in Christ Jesus. For it is a great gift, and we can fall into two serious ditches by either taking sin too lightly and thinking too little of the gift or sacrifice, or by taking sin so seriously that we've forgotten how great of a gift it is that has been given to us, and we forget how much more powerful our God is. The enemy can often feel so big, and that's part of his tactic, that we forget that God is far, far stronger. So I want to leave you with that message of encouragement that being perfected in Christ for all time is like the rudder that will guide your ship. And you will find great assurance and security in that if we continue to turn to him in repentance and seek after him. Because, as he says in his word, he is just and right to forgive us of our sins. And we can hold him to that. And in fact, he, he finds great joy in doing so. And he finds great joy in you as a Christian coming to him. And that should lead us to then shine our light to the world, to a darkened world, so that people can turn and glorify God. Let us pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you for the sacrifice of Christ Jesus. Thank you for your word. We ask that you would be with us as we go throughout the week. Help us to know that we are perfected in Christ for all time because of the sacrifice and because of the blood. And we ask that we would go forth and shine our light to those who are in a darkened world so that they may turn to you, that they may repent and be forgiven of their sins. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.